Welcome to the Essential Church Podcast. Our goal is to strengthen and equip church and ministry leaders just like you through practical and theological discussions about some of the most pressing and important issues facing the local church today. We feature conversations with members of our team here at New Life Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado, as well as interviews with authors and thinkers from around the world. You can follow The Essential.Church on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Watch episodes on our YouTube channel and also subscribe to our podcast via iTunes and Spotify, where you'll find a full archive of previous conversations. And now, here is this week's episode of The Essential Church Podcast. Welcome to this episode of the Essential Church Podcast, an ongoing conversation about some of the most important issues facing the local church today. I am your host, Andrew Arndt, and today I'm going to take you to one of the best interviews I think that we have ever done on the Essential Church Podcast. It's with Dr. Lucy Pepiat, who's the principal of Westminster Theological Center over in the United Kingdom, and she's the author of Rediscovering Scripture's Vision for Women, Fresh Perspectives on Disputed Texts, and what she's advocating for in her her book and throughout her teaching is what, for what she calls a mutualist understanding of the relationship between men and women in the church. And what's fascinating about her work is that she takes so many of the texts in scripture that are traditionally used to support a subordinationist position, and she actually turns those texts right on their heads and shows us that the texts might not be saying what we think that they're saying. It was an incredible interview, so incredible that it went 45 minutes or so. So this is part one of two. We think you're going to enjoy it. And without further commentary from me, here's to the interview. Well, all right, we're here today with Dr. Lucy Pepiat. She is the principal of Westminster Theological Center, and uh, she's coming to us from Bristol, the United Kingdom, today. And uh, Lucy's research disciplines are Christ in the Spirit, Charismatic Theology, Discipleship, and 1 Corinthians. She's the author of several books, um, Unveiling Paul's Women, uh, also Women and Worship in Corinth, uh, along with the book that we're going to talk with her about today, which is Rediscovering uh, Scripture's Vision for Women, Fresh, Dis- uh, Fresh Perspectives on Disputed Texts. Uh, this book is an incredible book, and we've actually featured your work uh, on our podcast before. Uh, for those of uh, our listeners who uh, will recall some recent history for us, episode 76, Women in Ministry, quote, The Tough Texts. We featured a lot of the work that you've done. So we are delighted to have you on the program today, Lucy. Thank you. It's great to be with you guys. So just to get us started today, I want to, um, I'd love for you to give us some biography, kind of Lucy's background here. Tell us a bit about your vocational journey. And in particular, uh, when did you know that you wanted to be a theologian? And how did your research yeah. interests really come into focus? Tell us about that. Uh, thanks. Um well, I, it was a bit later in my life uh, that I decided to study theology. So in my 20s, I made a commitment to Jesus and uh, ended up marrying an Anglican clergyman, uh, which was not my life's plan. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> God kind of hijacks you, yep. and um, which was great. So I then, and, and then we had quite a number of children. So I have four sons, which is also wonderful. Um, so I was busy with church and kids, uh, but I also felt that God was calling me into a preaching ministry really mm. from quite young in my mid-20s. And um, 
So I did a little course for that with the Anglican Church and loved preaching and teaching. And then as I got into my 30s, I thought, actually, if I'm going to be a preacher and a teacher, I need to do more training than mm. just the little training I'd done. So I did a degree uh, by correspondence and I got to the end of that and I thought, oh, I think there's lots more to learn, mm -hmm. really. So I, then I went to do a master's in systematic theology and I kind of fell into it, to be honest. It, mm. it was a bit of a, you know, I, didn't, I hadn't had any teachers for my degree, so I was just wandering around in theology and I thought, mm. oh, the systematics is great because it's all about God and... So I did this master's and halfway through my master's talked to my personal tutor, who was Murray Ray. And he very su surprised me completely by saying, I think you should do a PhD because mm. I was wondering what I should do next. And um, so I, yeah, I feel like I sort of just stumbled from one thing into another mm. and uh, did a PhD, but had no ambitions at all for kind of becoming an academic in any way. And, um, I did it because I loved it, because I mm. I thought it was important for church people to, to learn and to become knowledgeable about their faith. And I, I always thought I was just going to do a little bit of teaching. Mm. Um, and then uh, far too long a story, for, uh, but I got uh, kind of hauled into WTC mm. when it was in a crisis and ended up being appointed as the principal and in the middle of all of that which was very strange because I was under enormous pressure mm. uh, in my job um, felt some ideas forming around 1 Corinthians 11 and Paul and ended up writing a book on that as well um, so it's a, I've had a very strange sort of meandering career in the last 15 years. And mm -hmm. Nothing, I couldn't have planned it if I had tried. Mm -hmm. um, so really, I'm a systematic theologian who loves to study Christ in the spirit. Uh, I ended up writing on Paul, <laughs> because, but I also love Paul. And I have also written a book, as you say, that you have on your desk there, um, yeah on the difficult texts about men and women in the New Testament, well, and and from Genesis. Well, it's so important for people to appreciate the breadth and depth of your theological credentials and work and contributions, Lucy, because, you know, sometimes I find we don't want um, theologians who are female to only speak on the texts that relate to women or, you know, in, in, in the U.S. to have a, a person who's an African-American to say, can you speak about race, please? You know, because mm -hmm. obviously there's there's so much more to you. So we want our, our listeners to be aware of that. Uh, at the same time, because you have turned your attention to these texts mm -hmm. about women in ministry, I think it's such an important thing because there are a lot of our listeners and maybe friends or, or members of their churches who deeply, deeply want to honor and um, treat the Bible with a, with a sense of authority and, and mm -hmm. respect and don't want to make decisions that they would feel are outside the bounds of yeah. the text. Mm -hmm. And what you're doing is you're, first of all, you're reframing the conversation. You're, you're saying, let's get out of these labels of complementarian versus egalitarian. And you use a different a pair of, of, or a different sets of terms that I'd like you to talk about here for a moment, even before we open the text. How do you reframe this by saying, set aside complementarian and egalitarian and use these two other words instead. Talk about that and what led you to that choice. Yes. I'm really sure that I got a bit, so, so instead of 
complementarian, I refer to mutualists, and mm. I'm sure that I got that from Scott McKnight, uh, but he couldn't quite remember where he thought he got that from. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I, I, but I I think I did get it from him, or maybe he got it from someone that doesn't remember who he quoted, but I was drawn to the term mutualist instead of complementarian because when I first heard complementarian many, many years ago um, as an expression, I assumed that that was somebody who believed that male and female complemented one another perfectly. Right. So I saw that as a sort of equal status, you know, sort of um, expressing full equality between Mm. men and women. As I got to know what complementarians think, I understood that actually there's a structure of authority and submission between men and women within complementarianism, which they think is the right thing. They think that is the complement of right. men mm. to women. Um, and I, and I realised that, of course, I was that's not what I thought, but I did think that men and women are good partners. Yeah. Um, you know, not they're not identical. Marriage. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. There's a difference, and it's a good difference, and it's productive mm. and generative, and helps both men and women to become who they are. And so, you know, I value mixed teams and all sorts of things. So, um, so I wanted to reframe that because I think that complementarian gives is a bit of a uh, mm. is misleading, yeah. To, yeah. really. And so I, I call complementarianism um, hierarchicalism, which is a little bit of a mouthful, but so is complementarianism. Mm-hmm. So there yeah. we go. You can get used to these things. <laughs> and, um, and, and mutualism, which I think it gives a better expression yeah, um, to does. egalitarianism, because as a European... Um, oh, I still see myself as a European. There you go. <laughs> you are. You are. I'm, I'm not anymore, sadly. But um, uh, but anyway, as someone who has been part of Europe, uh, egalitarianism for me connotes a, a, a political structure, right? You know, after the French Revolution. So, mm. um, so again, I wasn't quite. I didn't really well, see that as well, a sort of. Word. And you mentioned this in the book, but but the, the danger with egalitarianism as a terminology is it can imply interchangeableness. That mm. that uh, and, and I think what you're trying mm. to say is there is overlap uh, in, in many of these roles and in, in many of these functions. Um, but mutuality or mutualist is a better way to describe that because mm. there is there's no power differential in mutuality. Um, and yet there is differentiation within mutuality. So whereas egalitarian mm. can give the impression that we're erasing all gender differences and sort of, you know, everything is interchangeable and it can be a bridge too far for, for many. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, I'm not really an anti-hierarchical person in the sense that, I mean, I'm not right. an egalitarian at WTC, for instance. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. You're the principal. principal. Yeah, yeah authority, <laughs> authority and power matter. I That was the thing that yeah. I think was most illuminating for me and thinking about the difference between complementarian, egalitarian versus hierarchical and mutualist, there are some aspects of life in which hierarchy is necessary. What we're not doing, or if we're following the pattern of scripture, right, what we're not doing is dividing that up uh, by By male and female. Yeah, by gender. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Lucy, I want to ask you a question here just, and we're going to get, and we're going to get into the text in a second here, do some text work together, which I think is going to be really helpful for our people. But I think another thing that was very fascinating to me about your book, and I'm going to quote you to yourself, (laughs) <laughs> I get you to comment on it. Is that these 
um, issues are not just cosmetic for the church, but they actually strike at the very heart of our understanding of salvation. And so of complementarity, um, complementarity, you write that the complementarity of these relations for men and women will endure only for as long as a woman agrees to renounce authority, power, and autonomy in favor of a man for the common good. This is a precarious harmony where the flourishing of both men and women depends mm. on an unequal submission of one to another, of women to men, and is not best described as complementarity. And you go on to say that to drive a wedge between a spiritual reality and patterns of concrete relations between men and women calls into question the very nature of what we are claiming has been won for her in Christ in the first place. There is literally nothing for her to show for the claim that she has been saved into co-equality with a man. That statement leveled me. And I'm wondering if you could just comment on maybe the seminal moment that you had where you saw that this is actually a soteriological problem and not just a church polity problem. Um, yeah, I, I think where... I think that it comes out of when, when we meet Jesus, you know, when we know we, we feel like we've met him or we feel like we know him. Obviously, we don't know God fully and there's lots that we still have to know. Um, but my experience of coming to know God in my 20s in a way that I didn't before was um, just uncompromisingly uh, affirming and mm. building me up as a person you know encountering the love of God mm. for me was really life-changing yes. and I was someone who had been very loved in my life you know wasn't I had come from a wonderful family so it wasn't like I had a big deficit that God had to plug but mm. even I had deep insecurities and things that I had done that need to be healed and you know all sorts of things and and finding God in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit was life-changing for me mm. and um I it was a deeply liberating experience as well in all sorts of ways and um formed me you know as a person and when I discovered, because I was, I came into an Anglican charismatic evangelical church and it was wonderful and everybody was great. And we had, you know, I had a wonderful three year, four years there and mm. got married there and everything. And uh, so I didn't really encounter this kind of complementarianism that I think you have in the US and we do have in pockets here in the in the UK but not quite so badly and when I understood how deeply it goes and how many women are affected by it and men um I I realized that that kind of um setup of relationships between men and women in the church is actually hindering or blocking some kind of uh, revelation to a woman about who she is in yeah. Christ yeah. That, that I really feel yeah. that now I know that a complementarian would uh, you know vehemently disagree with me yeah and say that that part of who she is in Christ is her standing in submission 
under men. Mm. But I don't think that's true. Mm. I think that it's preventing her from understanding that actually before Christ, she can come into the fullness of who she is. Yes. And that's what Jesus wants for her. Yes. So men should not be standing in the way and saying, well, I'm going to mediate right. Christ to you. Um, and instead of being in submission to Christ, you should be in submission to me as a sign that you're in submission yes, to Christ. Right. Yes. And for me, that's a distortion, actually, <laughs> of the gospel, because it's yeah. a distortion of what Christ says to the woman. Yeah. So I suppose that is that long-winded. That's a great story. answer to that question. It's a great answer, and it's a perfect segue to let's go to the text now, if, you, if you're good with that. And let's start with, with Genesis. Let's start with... There's two passages there. One is in Genesis two, the, the you know the infamous helper or helpmate um, mm-hmm. phrase that maybe has been misunderstood, and then Genesis three, where your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Mm-hmm. Um, take us through that. The, the, what's the creational design or intent here in Genesis two? Yes, it, in Genesis is such a fascinating. These are fascinating chapters for us because um, they're dealing with you know, deep things about identity and how we're related to God and what he was actually doing when he creates human beings. And so we have Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3 are these seminal texts. Mm -hmm. And um, in Genesis 1, Genesis 1 leads us off, you know, gives this kind of amazing crescendo of that there is God and he creates human beings in his image and his likeness and he creates them male and female and I think that has to be our first you know strong kind of foundational theological plank Mm. that we lay down and for me that that's you know it's important Genesis 1 comes before Genesis 2 yes (laughs) yeah so that's essential Um, So we know wherever we go, whatever we do, we know that male and female together and as male and as female are made in the image and likeness of God himself. Um, So that's just a kind of magisterial claim. Mm -hmm. But then we have another creation story. So it's fascinating. You know, Genesis takes us through two lenses on to the creation of human beings and this obviously is much more detailed and interesting where you get this creature that's formed out of dust and um the the so i had studied these texts really just sort of for myself i'm not an old testament scholar i had done some reading around genesis and then when i was researching for rediscovering um scripture's vision for women i had to look at these texts from the perspective of a hierarchicalist Mm -hmm. and from a perspective of a mutualist and try and see how both people could read what they did out of the text, which is, you know, it's really interesting exercise. And I would kind of um, recommend that to people. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel that to write my book, I had to dig deeply into how how a hierarchicalist reads the scriptures and um, I would really like to invite a hierarchicalist to adopt so to come into my world and to read my book and say and see how I read the scriptures as a mutualist yeah 
and kind of see, put my glasses on and see why I see the opposite, because it's mm-hmm. a very interesting exercise. Well, on that point, so, can you, can I ask you just a clarifying question? I, I think what I found very fascinating about that chapter on Genesis 2 and 3 was the text work that you did on helper suitable to him, yeah. Ezer Konegko, mm-hmm. I think is what it is, in the yeah. Hebrew. Can you talk about how the work that you did there and how you've come to the conclusion that that's not a subordinationist position, but it's actually a calling into co-equal power. Can you show us that? Um, Well, it was really, I mean, I borrowed work. I've borrowed a lot of work for my, um, for what I did, which is, I suppose, what scholars do. And um, I borrowed work from Old Testament scholars Hmm. who make a very clear case for that phrase as being a, 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 a words that connote um, strength yep. and mutuality, um, and that for that to be translated as a help meet mm-hmm. when the the word themselves have been used for God. Yeah, um, <laughs> right, right. That's the key. Is, is really is is kind of it's disingenuous. It's bringing something out of the text that the text doesn't lend itself to, mm-hmm. and that's something that. We, I found when we moved forward to um, to Phoebe, this was another example of how translators have taken a word and translated it to to um, present the picture of the woman as somehow uh, sort of much a much gentler picture and a subordinate picture or a submissive picture of this woman. Um, Whereas, in fact, this woman is his counterpart, Mm -hmm. which is what, you know, this is what Old Testament scholars are bringing out of this text now that this and which makes much more sense of the 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 man cries out here she is flesh of my yes. flesh and bone of my bone and and when i was reading these old yeah. testament scholars on Ezer connecto i thought but that's what they're saying yeah that you know that's what he's saying yeah. is he sees her and he cries out that she is his perfect counterpart who mm. is you know is going to be with him now um forever and is his own substance and is his equal and and also they um make much of him of her coming out of his side um rather than from his head mm-hmm. or his feet which i think is really interesting so that again um denotes equality and mutuality as they occupy um a sort of similar space <laughs> 